Bill, of all the podcasts you've been invited on, this may be one of my favorites. In fact, it may be one of your favorites. You were a guest on Brian Collins' podcast with Dr. Michael Roos, and it was informative, it was entertaining, and <laughs> quite meaningful. Is that the feeling that you got? Yeah, it was, Kevin. I was surprised at how well this dialogue went. I really enjoyed it. It was conversational, friendly, uh, and yet very substantive. And uh, I I thought it was really one of the best that I'd done. You have some history with Michael Roos, and anyone who Mm -hmm. reads your work has seen his name come up. So fill us in on Michael Roos. Well, years, decades, in fact, ago, one of the very first debates I ever participated in was a debate on a Canadian university campus with Michael Roos, uh, and it went really well. I was very excited about it, but unfortunately, the recording failed, and as a result, it was lost to posterity. And so I was really happy for the opportunity to go toe-to-toe with Michael Roos again uh, and, and to have a recording of our exchange. The title of the episode is Why Believe in God? But the three of you never got to that topic. You ended up no. talking about Christianity and the nature of truth and ultimate meaning. Uh, Michael Roos claimed to be an agnostic who nevertheless retains his Quaker upbringing. And if one looks up Quakerism, there is a distinction in their theology involving an immediate experience of God or hearing directly from God. Do you think that's what Dr. Roos referred to as a mystical influence on his philosophy? Yes, quite definitely. He's very explicit about that, that his Quaker upbringing has made him favor a theology that is mystical and really ah rational. Uh, He has no use for arguments for the existence of God or even for the articulation of doctrinal truths about God. All that matters to him is simply a, a mystical experience. Let's go to this first clip where Dr. Roos talks about his atheism as a student and where he is today. Clip number one. By the time I left there, went to university, I was still a believer, but you know what day I just said, woke up and said, you know, I don't think I believe in God. I really thought that by the time I'm 70, I'll be back on side like Anthony Flew was. You know, you get to 70, yes. you can't afford to make mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So I thought I'd be back on side. What absolutely amazed me was that I did not feel that at 70. I did not feel that at 80. However, what I have found and I think I think it's always been there, but increasingly at this age, these sort of moral messages, uh, spiritual messages that I got from Quakerism as a child have become more and more pressing. They've always been pressing, but they're more and more pressing. Now, please understand, the one thing I'm not doing is substituting some kind of humanism for my Christianity. I, I, I hate humanists. I don't hate... Yeah, I always say... Well, humans seem to take credit for... You can't hate Christianity. You just can't. I sure as hell can hate humanists, uh, you know, because I think that's that's just a cop-out. So, as I say, I'm an agnostic, and the final word I'll say is, 
in many respects, I'm attracted to what is it, apathetic theology, where one can say what God is not, but one can't say what God is. He mentions Antony Flew there, Bill. He also hoped that he himself would come back to full theism by the time he was 70. Apparently, he did not. Right, and he said again by the time he reached 80, he hadn't come back. But, you know, Kevin, I was at least encouraged to hear that he's thinking about it. And it would be just wonderful if late in life he were to turn about and um, give his life to Christ in faith. Here's the next clip in which he talks about the resurrection. Let's go to that clip. I don't think my uh, doubting a physical resurrection actually comes from science at all. I think, once again, it's very much part of my Quakerism that, for me, I'm fully prepared to accept on that Sunday, at some point, the disciples were sitting around feeling absolutely dreadful and downcast. And then suddenly... They said, our Savior lives, and it, it all changed. Now, I don't give a damn whether that was a physical resurrection, I doubt it was, or whether it was a psychological or what. What's relevant is the meaning. And as far as I'm concerned, that's about the, I'm, you know, the resurrection. Whether or not I'm, I want to read into it what Bill Craig wants to read into it is another matter. But I have no problems with the resurrection. I have problems with the idea that miracles must involve change of law. But it's not even a, whether, a question whether or not the, a, a, the laws are broken. It's just the irrelevance of the question of whether or not the laws are broken. Right. Dr. Craig, why is it, why can't I just, why isn't it possible for you to accept that maybe Christ was speaking in metaphor, and the resurrection is a metaphor, and why can't you be a good Christian to believe that, that Jesus didn't have to physically resurrect, but rather there was a, there was a, a metaphorical resurrection, there was a spiritual resurrection, there was a, there was a resurrection within, within our hearts, which we have all the time, right? So why is it that we can't just speak in metaphor when we talk about Christ's resurrection? Why does it have to be the physical resurrection? I think fundamentally it's because that's not the way the historical sources present it. Bill, you went on to elaborate your point about what the historical sources tell us, and I think that that's something that they both needed to hear. Yeah, it's funny with Michael Roos how his views are not shaped by his philosophical thinking or scientific thinking. It's his Quakerism that still seems to pervade his religious thinking. And so he prefers to think about the resurrection as a metaphor, um, even though that's not the way the historical sources present it. They present it as an event of history that left public, tangible uh, evidences in its wake, such as the empty tomb of Jesus. You know, N.T. Wright, the British New Testament scholar, has been especially emphatic that the Christian movement came into being suddenly in the middle of the first century, and any historical hypothesis needs to present a causally sufficient account for the origin of this movement. And I think that it's utterly implausible to say that after Jesus' crucifixion, these Jewish men were just sitting around, and as Michael Ruse said, they suddenly says, oh, he lives, and, and went out to believe in a purely metaphorical resurrection. That is not an accurate uh, account of the early Christian movement. 
Here's the next clip where he talks more about metaphor and meaning in Scripture. Let's go to that one. The Bible speaks allegorically. doesn't mean to say it's false in any sense. doesn't mean to say, but it does mean that this is a, a, a story, but it's the, the real part of the story is the meaning. And I would go back straight away to the resurrection. I mean, these people had not done philosophy 101. So I, I don't expect the the disciples or any others to be able to make the kind of distinction that I'm making. I mean, I'm not pushing myself up. I mean, I'm repeating arguments of others. But I, I would say this kind of argument, would, they wouldn't be able to grasp it properly. So I find nothing, nothing odd at all in the story of Jesus rising from the dead and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I take it that's the same sort of level as God creating the sun on the first day, but not day and night until the third or fourth day. So it doesn't mean the Bible is false, either in Genesis or in the four Gospels. There is metaphor in Scripture, Bill. Uh, people sure. often ask us to distinguish metaphor from literal when reading the Bible. Yeah, and here again, we just see the incredible naivete of this sophisticated philosopher. He doesn't seem to understand literary genre or literary interpretation. While the stories in Genesis, I think, uh, do have at least a quasi-mythical character that is not an accurate genre analysis of the Gospels, which are closest to ancient biography, which definitely have a historical interest. So it would be um, completely unrealistic to try to treat the narratives of the life of Jesus, including the resurrection, as myths. In fact, in an article written by uh, James D.G. Dunn on mythology in the New Testament, he said, an article like this isn't even relevant anymore to New Testament scholarship, because even though perhaps back in the 19th century, or early 20th century, this was a, a relevant category that was discussed, he says, we have now seen the eclipse of mythology in New Testament historical Jesus research. They, scholars have come to realize that these are biographical, historical uh, accounts that you cannot equate with myth. Let's go to the next clip where Brian asked about the search for truth. Next clip. Is, is the idea of looking for truth, and I'm saying objective truth, worth, worth the effort? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But obviously, our, we differ over what is objective truth. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i getting the feeling that we're in a, a Kuhnian situation here, that we've got oh. two paradigms and they're incommensurable. Oh. It doesn't mean that Bill Craig is stupid. It doesn't mean that. It means that he's seeing from one perspective the rabbit, if you know, and I'm seeing it, I'm seeing the other perspective, the duck. Uh, and I have a feeling, you see, I want to talk about objective truth just as much as Bill does. But it, if I were a Christian, I would be absolutely committed to the idea of objective truth that, yes, Christ did rise. But what did that mean? It meant that the disciples felt in their hearts, in their minds, that 
their savior had not left them. He was there. He was supporting them. And he was obviously giving them, telling them, you can't just sit on your bums now, folks. <laughs> this story is only just beginning. You've got to go out and do something about this. Bill, let me just emphasize what you were saying earlier. Dr. Roos earlier said how dreadful the disciples must have felt. So he's acknowledging the historical narrative. But he goes on to say that once they had this psychological impression that of Jesus' non-physical resurrection, that they could go forth and do something about it, as he says. And for the life of me, I can't imagine that they would get together after the brutal execution of Jesus by the very people Messiah was to overthrow and say, uh, let's have a good attitude about this whole thing and go get ourselves tortured and executed, too. Yeah, this, and, this yeah. is a completely unrealistic and inadequate account of the origin of the Jesus movement in mid-first uh, century Palestine. Um, this is Rus's Quakerism and biblical naivete that's coming to uh, expression here, not an informed and serious uh, account of the historical narratives. Yeah, and, and let me just mention as well, he, he, he was talking about the rabbit and the duck, uh, some yes. people are uh, familiar with that famous photo uh, where it's just a difference in perspective looking at the same thing. Yes, I think that probably went by a lot of people in the audience. Um, and I, I completely disagree with him about this and was really surprised to hear him as a sophisticated philosopher of science endorse Thomas Kuhn's uh, contention in The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that science proceeds on the basis of incommensurable paradigms. That is to say, they cannot be evaluated objectively, and scientific change comes about simply because the old guard dies off and the new Turks come to assume the professorships. Kuhn's hypothesis about theory change has been almost universally rejected by contemporary philosophers of science, and it certainly provides no credible model for religious beliefs about Christianity and the historical Jesus. Cosmology, consciousness, and meaning comes up in this next clip. Let's check it out. My position, it, very quickly, it's almost mysticism appeals to me, that as it were, these are unknown, you know, is, why is there something rather than the nothing. I mean, I don't think that's a stupid question, like mm. Wittgenstein and others thought. I think it's a perfectly meaningful question. It's just, I have no answer to it. I have, I, I just have no answer to it. So I'm, what, as JBS Haldane said, not only is the world queerer than we think it is, it's queerer than we could think it is. And for me, something like body-mind is, that's a miracle. Why the hell can molecules think? I mean, and don't give me all the stuff about, you know, Dan Dennett and, and materialism or others, Dick Humphrey and emergencism. They don't work. I mean, we've got a real mystery there, like quantum entanglement. So I find this a very mysterious world that we, we live in. I don't think, however, that that guarantees that there's going to be a hereafter. I would think as likely as not, we're going to have what Socrates called, what was it, uh, an eternity of, of dreamless sleep. 
or something along those lines, if, if you were to ask me to put my money on it. But I, I just don't know. So for me, what makes my life meaningful in a way is it's a mystery. And so now the question becomes, what do I, Michael Roos, do in this? Do I go with, you know, saying simply like Cam, you said, oh, well, it's all absurd. Or do I say I'm going to make some meaning out of my life here and now? You know, Dr. Roos seems to have a cheerier outlook than Camus or Bertrand Russell, Bill. I'm just amazed, Kevin, that here we have this sophisticated philosopher of science whose views about reality are just shaped by his personal feelings and opinions. I mean, did you notice in that clip there was not a single argument given for the conclusion he believes in? He just attributes it to his Quaker upbringing as a child. Uh, And so these are opinions that really are like the uninformed opinions of a a layperson. It just baffles me that he has no rational basis for what he believes, but is just what appeals to him. In this next clip, Dr. Russo brings up John Hick, as well as the problem of the unevangelized. Next clip. Well, let me just swing round on that and bring up two things. One that troubled John Hick a great deal, who incidentally became a Quaker at the end of his life and went to the same <laughs> school that I went to. But he didn't have, was my doctoral mentor. He was my yeah, doctoral mentor. Didn't have mentor the, the bloody awful headmaster I had. Anyhow, uh, how do you deal then with a Buddhist who grows up totally ignorant of Judaism, of Jesus, of any of these things? But nevertheless, mm-hmm. as we look at their life objectively, we want to say, yes, that truly was a good person. They cared about others. They not only cared about their family. Uh, they tried to tell the truth. They they tried to help others. All of these sorts of things. But they did it in total ignorance of of, of Jesus or any of these things. Now that's the one th- problem I have. And of course, the other one is the problem of evil. How on earth yes. do you say your God with Heinrich Himmler? What was the crux of your response, Bill? Well, as I recall, what I said was that God judges people on the basis of the light that they have, and someone who's never heard the gospel of Christ will not be judged on the basis of his response to Christ. That would be manifestly unfair. Rather, he would be judged on the basis of his response to God's general revelation in nature and conscience. Now, I want to emphatically say that doesn't mean that he could be saved apart from the atoning death of Christ. It would just mean that he could be a beneficiary of Christ's atoning death without having a conscious knowledge of Christ. He would be like people in the Old Testament, like uh, Abraham and uh, um, Noah, who had no knowledge of Jesus Christ, and yet were beneficiaries of Christ's atoning death because they responded appropriately in faith to the light and the revelation that God had given them. Process theology comes up in this next clip and um, a few other theological terms. Let's go to the next one in this conversation. I mean, at a certain level, I find myself 
almost, well, sympathetic to process theology at this point, oh. that, you know, God is, you know, is struggling along with the rest of us at some sort of level. And mm. uh, I mean, I'm not saying I believe this, but I do find aspects of it very attractive. The thought that when Anne Frank is dying in Bergen-Belsen, God is there suffering with her. I find oh. I, yes, I, I would affirm that as well. I don't believe in the impassable deity yeah. of Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. What well, is the, well, I'm, I'm sorry, what is the impassable deity? What is the impassable uh, are, deity? Are you sort of cherry-picking uh, the Christian beliefs you, you want? No, no. I take the, the New Testament. I take the, the revelation in Scripture as my norm for Christian doctrine. And the things that it clearly affirms... I will affirm, but the things that it leaves open is a matter for philosophical and theological debate. Process theology, Bill, we might want to talk a little bit about that. And uh, uh, Brian wanted to know what the impassable deity of Aquinas was. Yeah, uh, for Aquinas, God cannot suffer. He is completely uh, unmoved by uh, things in the world. And I, I don't see that doctrine taught in the New Testament. It's so strange to me to hear Michael Roos saying that you're just cherry-picking the things you want to believe, because it seems to me that that's his method. He, he finds something attractive, and so he chooses to believe that without any sort of argument or rational basis. Whereas for me as a Christian, as I say, Scripture is the rule of faith. It is the teaching of Scripture that determines uh, the content of faith. And if Scripture leaves a question open, then that is open to debate and discussion. And I, I think with respect to, oh, say, a doctrine like divine timelessness, that would be an example of something that Scripture leaves open to debate. The multiverse and meaning comes up in this next clip. We have a couple of more clips. Let's go to this one. Well, of course, you could, if you have multiverses, I don't see any issue about multiverses, uh, you know, being created or however it is coming into being on a on a temporal basis. I mean, we know that our universe has a temporal basis, doesn't? What is it, eighteen billion years ago or whatever? So, uh, but uh, you see, this is part of the problem. I think which where we are divided is that for you. There is a meaning to it all with a capital yeah. M. And this, this is all important for you. And this is how you put your perspective. Whereas, I, if you like, I really am an existentialist. Uh, I, I don't have that comfort, if you like. Yeah. I, 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 I think that if you want to say life is meaningless at some sort of level, however, I don't think it, as I was saying, I don't think that means there's no meaning uh, or anything like that. I just feel that we've got to recast the way we think. And it, so even if you're right, for me, I would rather go my way than, as it were, say, well, it's really important to get on side, uh, you know, before it's too late. Uh, so this is my problem, is I, I just don't have that well, what is it, sense of divinitatis or something like that, oh. that plant, planting is always going on about. Uh, so but where can you accept? Here? I mean, as I say, I'm not an atheist. I, I, I if anything, apophatic theology, it suits me that I, yeah. I, I, I can say that God is not 
Michelangelo's God, you know, holding out his hand to Adam uh, and a lot of other things. I mean, obviously, but that's I a meaningful statement. It's just like a human writ large, because if he is, I don't know how the hell you could explain Hitler. Even if you're right, he still prefers his way, yeah. Bill. Yes. As I said, Kevin, it just baffles me that this philosopher simply chooses to believe the views that he finds most attractive. And, and he's, he's candid about that. He admits it. Um, and when he speaks of apophatic theology, some of our listeners might, might not be familiar with that term, that means the sort of way of negation. You can say what God is not, but there is no positive content of what God is. And because of his Quakerism, Michael Roos finds this apophatic theology very attractive. Does he have any reasons to think that it's true? No, but as he says, this is what he's inclined toward. Here's the final clip, Bill, and Brian, uh, ask again about meaning. Let's go to this clip. But, but Dr. Roos, you are looking for meaning. The, the, the whole point of this conversation and your life and, the, and asking these questions and studying the leaders of thought in all these fields, I believe, you know, is, points to the fact that you are, in one way or another, at least trying to get closer to something like the truth or get closer to being more right than you were wrong. And so what is that direction, if we were to extrapolate that direction that you seem to have dedicated your life to, isn't that, well, isn't that where you're looking for meaning? Isn't the, isn't, aren't you in the direction of truth when you're trying to do that? Aren't you, because you are agnostic, but you are pretty religious in some ways, it sounds like. You know, I mean, it's hard to get out of this trap. I don't think that you are a man who th says, well, it's all meaningless. I don't believe that. that that's, you wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't. <laughs> I take the challenge of the meaningless, metaphysical meaningless of the whole thing to be a challenge as to don't give up, don't just sit on your bottom and, you know, like the like the chap in the A. Mills story, you know, and then he sat on his bottom until he was saved. Uh, uh, no, I, I think what we try to do is make meaning of our life as it is. And I would say serving others, and also inquiring about the world, epistemology and ethics. And I think you can make for a very meaningful life. I, dear God, this last hour, anybody who said that this has just been meaningless or something like that, well, you know, they flunked. I'm not going to pass them. Maybe you would because you're a Christian and you're nicer than I am. But as far as I'm concerned, what we've, what, what we've been doing is something which is tremendously meaningful. It's yes. not meaningful with a capital M, but uh, well, well, I think it is. <laughs> I, I'll say with a capital M. That's where we do. <laughs> well, you found the conversation quite meaningful, Bill. Well, meaningful in an objective sense, uh, and not just a subjective sense. I think Michael Roos, my heart just breaks for him. I think he is so deeply conflicted. Um, on the one hand, he, he admits there is no ultimate meaning to life. Life is meaningless, uh, ultimately. But we can manufacture our own subjective, uh, illusory meanings in life for ourselves. 
And then in the next breath, he condemns Heinrich Himmler for the atrocities that he commits. Michael Roos says serving others can be your subjective meaning in life. But what about the Heinrich Himmler who says that the meaning in life is to purify the Aryan race by killing off all of the the Jewish contaminants? Um, On Roos's view, there is no way to say that one man's meaning is legitimate and the other person's is not. You are lost in a chaos of relativism and ultimate meaninglessness. And I do not understand why he finds that view attractive, much less why he would find that view to be true. Bill, as we wrap up today, uh, another reason I found this to be a, a tremendous dialogue, not just because of the content, but some of my family members were listening to me edit these clips from Michael Roos and Brian Callen, and they said, man, we're glad we have Dr. Craig, who can actually go on with an atheist show host and an agnostic philosopher and do a good job with them, answer their questions, and give them some stuff to think about. And so kudos to you, Bill, for for that. Uh, Apparently, you scheduled one more dialogue uh, after this, and so people can find it on YouTube. Yes, that's right. Brian Callen at the end of the podcast uh, said, well, let's schedule a round two in which we will discuss why believe in God. And so I did that this past week. Uh, So there's actually two parts to this uh, interview with Michael Roos. But I want to say that Brian Callen himself is not an atheist. He, I think, believes in God. He makes that clear. Okay. Uh, He's not yet a Christian. But he is really asking the deep questions about uh, the meaning of life and the truth of Christianity. And so uh, I think we can hope and pray for both of these men in their respective spiritual journeys. By the way, if you have not downloaded the Reasonable Faith app, be sure you do that. Go to reasonablefaith.org. You can download it, have instant access to all the resources from Reasonable Faith right there on your device. While you're at reasonablefaith.org, please consider giving a financial gift to the work of Reasonable Faith to help us continue to produce great content like this that reaches the world. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time on Reasonable Faith with Dr. William Lane Craig.